Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. It's Thursday, the 6th of February, 2020. I'm Zanny Minton Beddoes, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. This is Editor's Picks, where you can hear some of the most striking stories from the paper read aloud. I'm in New York this week, where American politics has been far from boring. After the fiasco of the Iowa caucus, our cover in America looks at the state of the Democrats. All the candidates vying for the party's nomination agree that ending President Donald Trump's tenure is a priority but they are starkly divided over what to offer Americans in his place. A lot rests on which side prevails, the radicals or the moderates. We argue that on every count, the moderates have the better argument. The Economist's US editor, John Prido, delves into these divisions in the latest episode of our new podcast on American politics called Checks and Balance. Looking back into history, John examines America's earlier flirtations with the radical left and asks if 2020 could be the year that the Democrats actually choose a self-proclaimed socialist as their nominee. For more, listen to Checks and Balance, available every Friday. Our cover in the rest of the world looks at the making of a modern CEO. On paper, this is a golden age for bosses. Profits are high and the economy is purring. Yet many corporate chieftains complain that the job has become harder, and they are right. They need to adapt. And finally, our Buttonwood columnist considers the culture wars between economists and Wall Street. The stories you're about to hear are just a sample of what's on offer in the paper. To read or listen to all of it, subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. First up. Why radicalism is the wrong route for the Democrats. It was a devastating contrast. As the Iowa caucus turned into a fiasco, Democrats blamed the software, President Donald Trump hailed an American comeback in the State of the Union message and basked in his acquittal by the Senate over impeachment. With the economy roaring and his approval ratings ticking up, Mr Trump looks likelier than ever to triumph in November. Compare that with the Democrats after Iowa, in which no candidate won the backing of much more than a quarter of caucuses. Democrats agree that ending Mr Trump's bombastic tenure is their priority. But their champions, now trudging round New Hampshire, eking out votes before next week's primary, are starkly divided over what to offer Americans in his place. The left argues that America has stopped working for most people and thus needs fundamental restructuring. Moderates recommend running repairs. A lot rests on which side prevails, the radicals or the repairers. Any of the frontrunners could yet end up as the nominee, the radicals Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, or the repairers Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, despite his bad day in Iowa. So, at a pinch, could Michael Bloomberg, another repairer, who is spending gargantuan sums before Super Tuesday next month. 
but on every count the repairers have the better of the argument. They are more likely to beat Mr. Trump to achieve things, and most important, to do what America needs. It is striking that all of the plausible nominees are campaigning to the left of President Barack Obama in 2012 and Hillary Clinton in 2016. They all have ambitious plans on climate change, and with the exception of Mr. Bloomberg, are sceptical of free trade. Nevertheless, Mr. Sanders, who calls himself a democratic socialist, and Ms. Warren, a capitalist, are distinctly more militant in both style and substance. This is partly a matter of degree, as health policy shows. All Democrats want the number of Americans without health insurance, which has risen from 27 million to 30 million under Mr. Trump, to be reduced, ideally, to zero. The repairers would expand Obamacare's market-based system until everyone was covered. Mr. Sanders and Ms. Warren, by contrast, would nationalise health insurance, revolutionising health care, a $3.8 trillion business accounting for 18% of GDP and which employs 16.6 million people. There is also a fundamental difference about the role of government. Take labour rights, for instance. All Democrats evoke a mythical golden age when people were rewarded fairly for a day's work. The reformers would increase minimum wages to, say, $15 an hour and spend more on education and retraining. The radicals would force any largish firm to put workers on its board. Ms Warren would give their representatives 40% of the seats, Mr Sanders 45%. Mr. Sanders would require firms to transfer 20% of their equity to workers' trusts. Both would create a system of federal charters to oblige firms to operate in the interests of all stakeholders, including workers, customers and the local community, as well as shareholders. Such a government-mandated shift in corporate power has never occurred in the United States. This radicalism is based on three misconceptions. The first is that Mr Trump showed in 2016 that you win elections through the fervour of your base rather than making a coalition. That is unlikely to work for Democrats in 2020. Presidential elections tend not to be kind to candidates who pitch their camp far from the political centre. Voters perceived Hillary Clinton as more extreme than Donald Trump in 2016, and it did not end well for her. In a 50-50 country, marginal handicaps matter. Mr Trump would have fun with Mr Sanders, who wishes to double federal spending overnight, and perhaps more important to the president, honeymooned in the Soviet Union. It was no accident that in his State of the Union message, Mr. Trump pointed to Juan Guaidó, the Venezuelan opposition leader who was his guest for the evening, and reminded Congress that socialism destroys nations. Few voters are hankering to own the means of production in suburban Philadelphia or Milwaukee, where the presidential election will probably be decided. Another misconception is that a radical who did get into the Oval Office would accomplish much. 
Some Democrats say that the intransigence of the Republican Party means an approach built around compromise is worthless. The pursuit of incremental change, they reckon, is an admission of defeat at the outset. They are right that the two parties in Congress have forgotten how to work together. Today's Senate is likely to accomplish less than any other in the past half-century. Their idea is to take on Mr Trump's reality TV populism with red-blooded economic populism. That might thrill activists and terrify Wall Street, but it would be both unproductive and self-defeating. Democrats believe in the role of government. They are condemned to try to make it work, not demonstrate that it cannot. The last misconception, and the most important, concerns the substance of what the radicals would like to achieve. Ms Warren takes her faith in government to extremes. If she had her way, the state would break up, abolish or impose fresh regulations on about half of the firms owned by shareholders or private equity groups. Mr Sanders would go even further. Both candidates treat private capital as if it operates with sinister intent, even as they embrace the state as if it were benign, capable and efficient. That is naive, just as thriving businesses at their best invigorate and enrich, so government at its worst can be capable of heartless cruelty and indifference. There are moments when the United States has required something like a revolution, before the Civil War, say, or in the years running up to the passage of the Civil Rights Act. This is not one of them. Unemployment is as low as it has been since the mid-1960s. Nominal wages in the lowest quartile of the income scale are growing by 4.6%. Americans are more optimistic about their own finances than they have been since 1999. Instead, America needs repairing, lowering the cost of housing and health care, moving to a low-carbon economy, finding a voting system that rewards consensus, not partisanship. For that, national politics needs to become boring again, not to be an exhausting, outrage-spewing fight between Mr Trump and the most extreme candidate the Democratic Party can muster. Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. Let me just close this real quick. So if you need a back-end developer, a UI designer, or a project manager for six days or six months, Upwork is how. Hey, I have this room booked at noon. I'm just wrapping up here. Upwork professionals have the flexibility and capability to work from anywhere. Yeah, it's 1201. Okay, it's all yours. Which is nice if you're already low on conference rooms. Plus, they're proven, rated, and reviewed. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how. Next, the rules of management are being ripped up. Bosses need to adapt. On paper, this is a golden age for bosses. Chief executives have vast power. The 500 people who run America's largest listed firms hold sway over 26 million staff. Profits are high and the economy is purring. The pay is fantastic. The median of those CEOs pockets $13 million a year. 
Sundar Pichai at Alphabet has just got a deal worth up to $246 million by 2023. The risks are tolerable. Your chances of being fired or retiring in any year are about 10%. CEOs often get away with a dreadful performance. In April, Ginny Rometty will stand down from IBM after eight years in which Big Blue's shares have trailed the stock market by 202%. Adam Newman got high in private jets and lost $4 billion before being ousted from WeWork last year. The only big drawback is all those meetings, which eat up two-thirds of the typical boss's working hours. Yet CEOs say the job has got harder. Most point the finger at disruption, the idea that competition is more intense. But they have been saying that for years. In fact, the evidence suggests that as America's economy has become more sclerotic, big firms have been able to count on cranking out high profits for longer. Nonetheless, bosses are right that something has changed. The nature of the job is being disrupted. In particular, CEOs' mechanism for exercising control over their vast enterprises is failing. And where and why firms operate is in flux. That has big implications for business and for anyone climbing the corporate ladder. Few subjects attract more voodoo analysis than management. Even so, studies suggest that the quality of an American firm's leadership explains about 15% of the variance in profitability. But boards and headhunters struggle to identify who will do a good job. Perhaps as a result, they tend to make conservative choices. About 80% of CEOs come from within the company, and over half are engineers or have MBAs. Most are white and male, although that is changing slowly. This tiny elite faces big changes, starting with how they control their firms. Ever since Alfred Sloan shook up General Motors in the 1920s, the main tool that CEOs have wielded is the control of physical investment, a process known as capital allocation. The firm and the CEO have had clear jurisdiction over a defined set of assets, staff, products and proprietary information. Think of Neutron Jack Welsh, who ran General Electric between 1981 and 2001, opening and shutting plants, buying and selling divisions and ruthlessly controlling the flow of capital. Today, however, 32% of firms in the S&P 500 of big American firms invest more in intangible assets than physical ones, and 61% of the market value of the S&P 500 sits in intangibles such as research and development, or R&D, customers linked by network effects, brands and data. The link between CEO authorising investment and getting results is unpredictable and opaque. Meanwhile, the boundaries of the firm and the CEO's authority are blurring. Uber's four million drivers are not employees, and neither are the millions of workers in Apple's supply chain. But they are mission critical. Big firms spent $32 billion last year on cloud services from a few powerful vendors. Factories and offices have billions of sensors pumping sensitive information to suppliers and customers. Middle managers talk business on social media. Even as CEO's authority is being redefined, a shift is underway in where firms operate. Generations of bosses have obeyed the call to go global. 
But in the past decade, the profitability of multinational investment abroad has soured, so that returns on capital are a puny 7%. Trade tensions mean that CEOs face the prospect of repatriating activity or redesigning supply chains. Most have only just begun to grapple with this. The last change is over the purpose of the firm. The orthodoxy has been that they operate in the interests of their owners. But pressure is coming from above, as politicians such as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren call on CEOs to favour staff, suppliers and clients more. And from below, as both customers and young workers demand that firms take a stand on social issues. Alphabet has faced rolling staff protests. CEOs are experimenting, with underwhelming results. Reed Hastings at Netflix preaches radical autonomy. Staff decide their expenses and do without formal performance reviews, an idea that at most firms would cause chaos. Others assert authority by reviving the 1980s cult of celebrity. Sometimes it works. Satya Nadella has rebuilt Microsoft using empathetic leadership. Often, it does not. Mr Newman's stint as WeWork's party animal-in-chief ended in fiasco. Jeff Immelt, the ex-boss of General Electric, has been accused of success theatre by making himself a jet-setting star as its cash flow fell by 36%. Keen to show they're engaged, bosses are publicly weighing in on issues like abortion and gun control. The danger is hypocrisy. Goldman Sachs's boss wants to accelerate economic progress for all, but it faces a huge fine for its role in the 1MDB corruption scandal in Malaysia. In August, 181 American CEOs pledged to serve staff, suppliers, communities and customers, as well as shareholders. This is a promise, made during a long economic expansion, that they will not be able to keep. In a dynamic economy, some firms have to shrink and shed workers. It is silly to pretend there are no trade-offs. Higher wages and more cash for suppliers mean lower profits, or higher prices for consumers. What, then, does it take to be a corporate leader in the 2020s? Every firm is different. But those hiring a CEO, or aspiring to be one, should prize a few qualities. Mastering the tricky, creative and more collaborative game of allocating intangible capital is essential. A CEO must be able to marshal the data flowing between companies and their counterparties, redistributing who earns profits and bears risk. Some firms are ahead. Amazon monitors 500 measurable goals – But most CEOs are still stuck clearing their email inboxes at midnight. Last, bosses need to be clear that a firm should be run in the long-term interest of its owners. That does not mean being crusty or myopic. Any sensible business should face up to the risks from climate change, for example. It does mean avoiding mission creep. CEOs in the 2020s will have their hands full with their own company – so forget trying to run the world, too. And if, in between meetings, you find time to smoke weed at 40,000 feet, don't get caught. And finally, QE or not QE? 
Shove hard and any group can be sorted into contrasting stereotypes. Larks and owls, thinkers and doers, conservatives and progressives. Shove again or simply stir and you have the makings of a clash. There is a culture war of this kind even in finance. The two bickering tribes are economists and practitioners such as traders and fund managers. Economists use formal models based on theory. They are rigorous, sometimes to the point of pedantry. Practitioners' thinking is looser and more intuitive. The battleground invariably is monetary policy and its effects. To outsiders, their latest spat over whether the Federal Reserve's large-scale purchases of Treasury bills since October counts as a stealthy revival of quantitative easing, or QE, seems obscure. Yet it is part of a broader question that has important implications. For a vocal group of practitioners, central bank policy has grossly distorted financial markets for a decade. For central bankers and their economist outriders, asset prices are a sideshow. Who is right? Everybody likes to think they exhibit the best attributes of both schools. The rigour of the economist and the market smarts of the practitioner. In fact, they may borrow the worst habits from each. So allow Buttonwood to walk into the trap that has been set for him. Both camps are wrong. There is certainly no love lost. For economists, a lot of market talk is shallow and naive. A decade ago, a charge heard mainly from practitioners was that QE would lead to hyperinflation. The context seemed not to matter, that QE was pushing against powerful deflationary forces, that the huge increase in central bank reserves met a deep need in financial markets for safe and liquid assets. Central bankers and economists have not been forgiven for getting that one right. Yet it is also the case that a lot of central bank speak is disingenuous. One of the many talents of Mario Draghi, the former head of the European Central Bank, was to keep a straight face whenever he claimed the sole aim of the ECB's bond-buying programme was to meet its inflation mandate. Why, you would be a fool to think that capping borrowing costs for indebted eurozone countries or devaluing the euro was the goal. Mr Draghi is excused because his policies kept the eurozone intact. But the slipperiness of the Fed is harder for practitioners to stomach. The roots of their latest spat go back to the end of 2017, when the Fed began to reverse QE – It was keen to put the process on autopilot, shedding so many bonds from its balance sheet each month. This would be plain sailing, it said. Many practitioners were unconvinced. The markets had got used to functioning with ample central bank liquidity. Sure enough, last September, money markets were suddenly short of cash. Overnight, interest rates spiked. The Fed responded by liberally lending overnight cash. It has since bought truckloads of T-bills. Its balance sheet, which had shrunk from $4.5 trillion to $3.8 trillion, has been expanding again ever since. Reserves are up, shrieked the practitioners. QE is back. Case closed? Actually, no. 
The Fed has not admitted it's screwed things up, which is galling, but it is nevertheless quite correct that the remedy it has fixed on is not QE. When the Fed adopted the policy after the financial crisis, it had run out of room to cut short-term interest rates and so decided to drive long-term interest rates down by buying longer-dated bonds. The goal was to extend the stimulative effect of monetary policy by depressing the term premium, the reward investors get for holding long-term bonds instead of a series of short-term bills. In essence, it was a swap of cash for assets. This is very different from what the Fed is now doing. It is essentially swapping cash, central bank reserves, for its closest substitute, T-bills, in order to keep the Fed's key policy instrument, short-term interest rates, where it wants it to be. This is monetary policy as described in textbooks. It is not QE by the back door. The practitioners are paying the Fed a strange compliment. They attribute an almost mystical quality to the size of its balance sheet. In fact, central banks are mostly responding to events, not shaping them. Despite some extraordinary monetary loosening, inflation has hardly budged. In their own peculiar ways, practitioners and economists are anxious about what this long period of low interest rates might eventually entail. The economists deal with the uncertainty by clinging to their models, the market types by trashing the economists. QE or not QE is not really the question. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. To read or listen to the whole of this week's issue, subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. You can also subscribe to our new podcast, Checks and Balance, on your podcast app. I'm Zanny Minton-Beddows, and in New York, this is The Economist. Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. So if you need a UI designer... Hey guys, Kevin. A full-stack developer... This is Madeline. Or a whole team of designers and developers working together. Hey, you've got the full team here. Uh, myself, Rachel, Adam, and Stephanie. Hey, everyone. Hey, how's it going? Hi. Upwork has agencies, too. Available for six weeks or six months. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how.